With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Derek here from Red Shirts and Runabouts. Just wanted to let you know that things are going to sound a little different this week. We uh, brought in a new guest for us and we had to record in a different way. So I apologize that the audio quality is a little bit lower than usual, but it's a good episode. It was a lot of fun. So I hope you will stick around and listen to it. Make it so. Hello and welcome back to Red Shirts and Runabouts, part of the Heroes Podcast Network. This is your uh, weekly Star Trek podcast from that network. I'm one of your regular hosts, Gregory Bosco. And with me, as always, is our other lovely host, Derek. And we also have a very special guest host today. So, Eric, go ahead and introduce yourself, say a few things about you and uh, your interest in Trek, my friend. First, I have a question. How many Cardassians does it take to change a light bulb? Cardassians or Kardashians? Cardassians. <laughs> the answer is four. Because there are four lights. Aw. <laughs> well, it, it's a good way of showing that Eric is as big of a Star Trek fan as we are. <laughs> yeah, I listened last week when you mentioned that episode. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I am Dr. Eric Collins. And as you may have guessed, I am a dad. <laughs> and, and a lifelong Trekkie. I've uh, watched every television episode and movie. I have collected a small number of screen-used Star Trek items, including a prosthetic nose worn by Michael Dorn at work on Star Trek The Next Generation. I'm here because I knows Star Trek and where Derek lives. <laughs> I like that, the I knows Star Trek. I caught that. Uh, there you go. Like I said, I'm a dad. I'm a, I'm a big fan of dad jokes. But you also, uh, Eric, have a bit of a passion outside of Star Trek. I didn't know if maybe you wanted to tell people about your time traveling interests. Yes. Um, besides Star Trek, I'm a, I'm a big fan of a lot of, of sci-fi. Star Trek is my first love. But... Uh, I also gotten into Doctor Who, of course, and uh, with my sons, I uh, built a life-size red Dalek, and uh, that's how I met the two of you, actually. Met at uh, conventions there. I'm not sure if it was Derek that signed me up with a, a cosplay group or not, but somebody, but, but you were the main contact after I got signed up with group. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And the red Dalek is super cool. You can actually uh, fit a person inside there to, to move it around and um, move the, uh, the arms and roll around the floor and stuff. It's usually one of your sons is in there. Yes. It's, it's my oldest son, Cameron. He's, uh, he's our best red Dalek actor 
he's got the voice down he really has the voice down he does as well as the comedy because you know when you're not like they can't exterminate anybody that's the only way you can kill (laughs) well you know what i love about the red dalek is aside from the 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 great doctor who stories and everything is that every convention i've been to when you're there and red dalek is there regardless of who the other guests are even the supreme costuming talented guests the beautiful guests the gorgeous very talented peoples red dalek always like steals the show when it's scooting along it's just (laughs) everybody sees it everybody knows exactly what it is and everybody swarms it Mm -hmm. (laughs) yes and we've had a lot of fun over the years it's 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 really helped uh, create a bond with my my boys uh and uh originally we was built for just a, a cub scout costume contest uh fairly accurate to what they uh they do for the shows so uh for the actual doctor who show where there aren't any motors there <laughs> there's just a, a seat uh flintstone power and uh two nine volt batteries running three led lights awesome i love the flintstone power that's pretty funny that's <laughs> Well, today we're going to be talking about two original series episodes to wrap up our season one TOS kind of walkthrough. Uh, for those who've been who have not been following along with us, we picked based on IMDb ratings the highest four and the lowest four rated episodes and paired them up with each other. Um, I think we're going to take a break from this format after uh, this week, so we'll we'll let you know what we have in store there. We've got some some fun ideas, but. We're finishing things up with the episodes Miri and Space Seed, which uh, Space Seed, of course, is the classic Khan episode that the Wrath of Khan is more or less a sequel to. Um, so we'll start things off with Miri. And uh, it's an earlier episode. It was um, episode 11 of the original series. So it aired in October of 1966, fairly early on. And I definitely remember as a kid liking this episode because it has a lot of children in it. But where should we start, guys? For, for me, because I've seen so many, uh, I've seen the, the original series so many times, each episode kind of has that one scene that I remember it best by. And for me, I don't know why, but it's that scene where Rand is upset, runs out into the hall, and Kirk follows her out, and she says, On the Enterprise, I tried to get you to look at my legs. Captain, look at my legs. And then she hurries up and covers the blotches on her legs. <laughs> I don't know why that's the main scene. And, of course, we have not set up what the episode's about, so most people have no idea if they don't, don't know what's going on with Mary. But <laughs> Greg, do you want to summarize the episode for us? Well, the episode for for season one open has one of the most bizarre opening sequences, probably of any of the episodes, because of course it's the famous Star Trek thing, you know, mysterious radio signal, mysterious speed, all this kind of jazz. But it turns out that the, they find like a planet that's a, it's essentially a duplicate of Earth. You know, it, it's a, well, what do they call it? Excuse me, Earth-like planet, I guess is the. Because it's the, the you know the mysterious distress signal they're responding to, and they find it. They say it's an exact copy of Earth, but it's like not Earth, but it is Earth, but it's not. It's anyways, and it's an old Earth SOS that's coming from the planet. Yeah, exactly. It's like all this, 
all this weird stuff they're trying to do with the duplicate of Earth and such. But when they, when they when they go to the planet, it's all children, but not quite children. I want to say it's like the Red Dawn thing. It's like they're all seventeen, basically. Not all of them. I mean, because you got some kids that are like eight, nine, ten, but Miri herself is that weird age bracket of fifteen to eighteen, where you're never quite sure exactly how old she's supposed to be. <laughs> except she's supposed to be prepubescent. Yeah, except she's supposed to be, but. Clearly not. Clearly not, because even Kirk has that really weird line with, you know, early on, you know, you know, what's your name? Miri. Miri, that's a pretty name for a pretty young woman. It's like, Jesus, Kirk. (laughs) This is like, you look look at your watch, you're like five minutes into the episode. Like, can you relax? (laughs) Now, now to put that in perspective here, you know, because I I was watching these things in the 70s uh, to begin with. And I watched a lot of the other reruns, you know, Gilligan's Island and Beverly Hillbillies and Bonanza and, and those, you know, the Westerns and all that in there, you know, Lone Ranger and that. In those days, that is a lot of the way adults would talk to children. It wasn't supposed to be creepy. It wasn't showing any kind of, you know, hey, baby, how are, how are you doing? You know, sup kind of thing. But as, as a former Cub Scout leader, we go through a lot of training about not speaking <laughs> to children in that way because it can be misinterpreted these days. Uh, rewatching this episode several times for, for this podcast, I, I definitely got a little more creepster out of Kurt when talking to Mary, <laughs> especially early on. Yeah, it's certainly awkward. So I, I probably had not watched this episode since high school, maybe. Um, and that was a little while ago for me. And I, I I remembered it in more adolescent eyes. And a lot of that relationship between Mary and Kirk comes off a lot creepier than I remember. It does. And maybe it's kind of like what Eric was saying is we're applying modern day 2018 sensibilities to what they were filming in the 1960s. Right, yeah. And and I get it. I know a lot. And, you know, people can say whatever they want of, you know, people should have talked like that back then. But whatever, if you think about it, the past 60 years, the world has rapidly, with overall cultures, changed and modernized quickly when it Mm -hmm. comes to things like that. Society is changing, hopefully improving. But, you know, I I kind of skipped a couple steps of of the movie because, you know, they have the crazy, insane adults and it's, and you know what the weird thing is? I know this was a lower rated episode. I wouldn't, this is nowhere like, um, this is not like Charlie X or com- compared to some of the bad ones we've seen. Yeah. I mean, this one's, I would assume is probably rated lower because it's, it's not as thrilling and exciting as some of the other episodes. You know, most of it takes place with a, a small cast. You don't see much of the group. Um, you're barely in space in this episode and it's really just about beating the clock and doing some sciencey tech, the tech stuff to keep everybody alive. And then you have a bunch of children who, you know, are more or less annoying in the episode than, than interesting. That's a good point. Um, you know, versus like, you know, the alternative factor, which, uh, is one that we covered is just like, 
it's it's a choppy story that makes very little sense with a lot of inconsistencies and, and that type of thing. Miri doesn't have those problems. It's it's a pretty clear story. It's coherent. The the uh, the allegory that it's going for is actually pretty solid still today, right? Mm-hmm. You know the 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 plot itself has aged well, if that makes sense. And it, that, that that is kind of the similarity it has with Space Seed. It's man was trying to improve itself, and that's where things have gone wrong. You know, now when I go back and watch it now, it I can the Star Trek episode in season two, Unnatural Selection, when Doctor mm-hmm. Polanski gets that age gets aging really rapidly because the kid's immune system or whatever. Yeah, it, it kind of there's similarities in the storyline of what they're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Which is, you, you catch that now because we're Star Trek fans and we've watched both series. But I'll admit, rewatching Miri today, I, there's no outright dislike of the episode. It was just more of a meh. And that's okay. You know, every series has, has those kind of episodes. I'm not, I, not every episode is going to be a 95%. Yeah. And this, this episode, I think, definitely uh, has the disadvantage of the longer run time. You know, like Space Seed, there's so much happening, and we'll get to that, that the long runtime's totally irrelevant. But here, I definitely feel like they could have cut this story down to what ended up being, you know, Voyager's runtime or something like that, uh, which is, you know, almost 10 minutes shorter. Um, and so it actually did come out 10 minutes shorter during the initial filming. Really? They had to add to it. Well, and there you go. The main, the main writer never wrote for Star Trek again because he, he wrote a, sh- a short script. Well, that's that. really interesting. So, so they had to do a bunch of late revisions and uh, sh- uh, shoots because of that. Fascinating. So uh, I wonder what some of the added footage was, you know, um, if it was you know, more of the, the science side of it, what, what did they do to pad that time? I, I The one scene that, that, always seemed strange to me was how, you know, after the, the, the monster dies outside by his tricycle, uh, they hear a noise, but then they run like two blocks, go into a, <laughs> to the house, like they heard the noise two blocks away. And Kirk and Spock run up to a piano, and Kirk asks, how old do you think this piano is? And Spock says, at least 300 years. And then they decide to go on to investigate the noise from there. Um, why do you care how old they are? <laughs> <laughs> oh. I will say some of the – this is another episode, Derek. We've talked about this in the past, where you can still tell they have the, – the overall production team has no idea what to do with Rand. It's yes. like they hint the love interest, but she's definitely not because she's kind of an, an independent woman. But then she, they hint at the romance and – I try to get you to look at me. I try to get you to be interested in me. And and they, they hint at like the first half season a lot. And then nothing, you know, nothing ever ends up happening. Well, let me, let me rephrase that. There's no like formal Detroit Riker type relationship with these two, but, but it's a plot point. And I'm wondering if some of the Rand stuff is what they added. Because well, actually the Rand, Rand was supposed to be a major character in the I, series. I remember that, and um, it makes me wonder if they're still trying to do that at this episode, obviously. Right. Um, she she was, <laughs> before they added Dr. McCoy, basically, she was 
one of the principals, uh, most of the original uh, promotional photos have her, Kirk, and Spock. Uh, and she's wearing more of a, a cage-type uniform, even though they're in their more recognizable uniforms. And she doesn't have the distinctive beehive or even the same makeup. So it's it's a little more difficult to tell it's her. Uh, she looks a little bit more like a lot of the others on on this set. Um, now, I, the the... What I had always heard is the official story was the network wanted Kirk to be available out there when he found, you know, that alien woman or something along that lines. They wanted him to be more adventure type character, the swashbuckling kind of guy. Um, but originally the production team had her and, and Kirk as love interests on there. Um, it, I, I spent a lot of time actually speaking with Bracely Whitney. Oh, really? <laughs> yes, at a convention several years back. Um, it was about the same time uh, The Best of Both Worlds had just had its first episode and ended the season on that. So everybody was very excited about Next Generation. And we had... Uh, John John Delancey and Marina Sirtis here in town with Grace Lee Whitney at a Star Trek convention. And very few people showed up for Grace Lee Whitney's panel, and even fewer stuck around after that. I spoke with her quite a while. <laughs> um, and then um, she during the panel, she had mentioned that, you know, the, the official word that was the network, but was what was really going on was she had a severe alcohol problem and a problem with marijuana as well, as well as a sex addiction. And this was something that she had told everybody there in the panel that basically she got herself fired because she had trouble getting to work uh, and, and staying on the job like she should. She was always out looking for the next drink or the next guy, that sort of thing. We, we had ended up having dinner together. <laughs> wow, that's cool. And I, and I, I even walked her to her room after that. Um, but that was the way she, she described it, was that it was basically her own fault uh, on there. But the official story was that they wanted Kirk to be unattached after all. And that, that kind of ends up being a cornerstone for the franchise because Picard is that way and uh, Janeway is that way, Archer is that way. I mean, Cisco does end up in a relationship and was in one, you know, right as the show kind of started. Um, but it was never a fellow crewman. Right. The only fellow crewman to really develop a relationship are, you know, what, Worf and Jedzia, right? I'm not talking Riker and Troy. I mean... You have Trip and Paul, and then Alana uh, and Tom on Voyager. Uh, how, okay. Yeah, I forgot about those two. Uh, you're, the, you're the Voyager better. Troy on, on, the, on uh, Next Generation, which was forgotten about by the time he moved over to. Well, <laughs> I, kind of, I kind of was ignoring that one. I was like, yeah, that was like a month. <laughs> yeah, that was weird. That was like a college thing. And in the, in the um, original series here, uh, see, Dagger of the Mind episode. There is a doctor 
that goes down to the penal colony with Kirk uh, that they had kind of had a little bit of a, a thing and a Christmas party. It's the only time I know of that they mentioned Christmas uh, party on the ship. It never led to anything. Nobody went back to anybody's room, that sort of thing. But they, you know, apparently got a little cozy at the Christmas party. It's, well, it's, uh, kind of, it's kind of like the Captain Picard and Neela Darren thing. It's like they had a relationship, but it didn't go anywhere because she ended up leaving the ship, which kind of was a shame because that was a good episode. Yeah. In, in the Day of the Dove, or Dagger of the Mind, I'm, I'm sorry, not Day of the Dove. In the Dagger of Mind, uh, she is testing out the mind control machine and even plants in the new memory that he did go back to her cabin at one point. So Kirk may still believe he went back to her cabin. Don't know that for sure. <laughs> they never really cleared that up by the time that episode was over. Well, and on that topic, though, that's part of like a big part of this, or excuse me, that's a big part of this episode when Miri is convinced, almost like jealous of whatever Kirk and Rand have because it leads to her and the kids kidnapping Rand and that whole plot point, which I got to give him credit for. That's, you know, it's kind of tropey, but back in the 60s, it wasn't necessarily, it's tropey today. It wasn't necessarily necessarily a huge sci-fi trope back then to have a spurned love interest try to kidnap the real love interest or whatever. All right, Greg, every time you said trope, I'm thinking what my boys and I do when you when you guys say the word trope on your episode. They say we say trope bonk bonk. We <laughs> <laughs> uh, say trope a lot. <laughs> well, it's it's my thing. What can I say? <laughs> Fine, I'll find. I'll come up with a new word. Stereotype. You change it up a little bit. Stereotype. Yeah, anything like that. You stereotype. Know? Stereotype has a bad connotation, though. <laughs> so does trope. Overall, it's it's a fine episode. I, I think it gets more hate than it probably deserves. It's definitely uh, it definitely holds up better than a lot of the older, lower rated episodes. But uh, I don't know. I don't know that there's much else to say about it. What about you guys? But Mary was played by Kim Darby, who was who I remember best in the movie True Grit with John Wayne. Oh, nice. Yeah. And let's see, another note I've got here. Remember when they go to steal the communicators? John goes in to steal the communicators? Yes. He steals five communicators. Six people beam down to the planet. Mm -hmm. So one of them kept their communicator on them anyway, and that's all they would have needed was one. Hey, send down four more, you know, five more communicators. But uh, anyway, <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I never really counted. Uh, but I do feel like one of the two security guards kind of goes missing for a while in this episode. Yeah, yeah. Um, they, they, all, they both disappear quite a bit. And when the younger one of the two comes back at the end, when, when uh, Dr. McCoy has taken the, the serum, he still doesn't have any of the blotches visible on him. Hmm. Maybe they're under his shirt. I don't know. Mm -hmm. The one thing I was laughing about before we go to Space Seed, which is an amazing episode even today, is I was laughing during during the rewatch because I just watched Galaxy Quest a couple weeks ago (laughs) when they beam up Nesmith or they transmogrify him, whatever it's called, the digital conveyor. When they, they, you know, 
digitizes him back up to the ship and his shirt's yeah. off. And Dr. Lazarus is like, I see you found a way to get your shirt off again. And the scene <laughs> when Kirk is tearing off the sleeves to show. <laughs> I, I admit, I kept thinking that. I was like, yep, that's that. This is, they should take a, they should make like a bingo chart for every time Kirk tears his shirt or something. Kirk always wears a tearaway uniform just in case. Yeah. I didn't know, but I didn't know Velour was that, was, was that flimsy, but hey, you know. You'll notice in this episode, he and Dr. McCoy have the zipper on the shirt open through a lot of the episode. Mm-hmm. Her, when you see Kirk's zipper open, you see the collar is built into the shirt. When you see McCoy's shirt zipper open, his collar is part of a black undershirt on there. So a little difference in the, in the costumes on there. And Not necessarily a ton of consistency back then. Yeah, and one of the things I noticed uh, also was we had no Lieutenant Uhura in this episode. We had Lieutenant Farrell, who was the navigator in Mud's Women at the comm station. And no Sulu either. No Sulu, no. I don't believe he had Scotty either. But it was odd that they put somebody else in Uhura's seat. Uh, yeah. The other particularly guy who was the navigator and Yet another bad episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Hmm. Go figure. Yeah. Anyway, I grow weary. Or no, I grow fatigued of this episode. <laughs> well, Eric, you're the special guest. Why don't you jump? Why don't you jump us back in the space seat then? Space seat. I don't want to oversell it, but this is probably the most important Star Trek episode across every series. It led to the Wrath of Khan which led to more movies being made, uh, and as well as because of the movie's popularity, that's what got Star Trek The Next Generation. Without Star Trek The Next Generation, you wouldn't have Deep Space Nine. You have an Enterprise. Uh, then you had the In the Darkness, of course, being a graphic on there. Altogether, there were five episodes of Enterprise that had something to do with augments like yes. like Khan, an episode of the uh, animated series, and then, of course, the Rathacon and, and uh, In the Darkness movies. And without Space Seed, without Harv Bennett watching Space Seed, uh, seeing the interactions between Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, which are very good in this episode, um, he, that's where he folk decided that you know, where the, the motion picture failed is they didn't focus on those three characters. And then he found an episode that also had room for a sequel. But the episode of Space Deed is about uh, where it starts off with the Enterprise investigating on yet another old Earth signal. And uh, finding an old Earth ship out where none should be and discovering that uh, humans from the 1990s are on board. By the way, Eric, i got to compliment you on your first point when you mentioned Into Darkness. We could hear an audible sigh. (laughs) 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 And then there we go, Derek. It's Derek's. It's Derek's near second favorite film of all the movies. How dare you, sir? 
How dare you? I always heard about Derek. His, uh, he loved that that particular installment of the, the Kelvin timeline. Yeah, you know, I thought this was I a thought. safe space. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, back to Space Seed, which is our safe space. Space Seed well, is, is positive. I know I watched Into Darkness once, so, you know, there's that. <laughs> I've seen it twice now. Maybe yeah. three, maybe three times. I like it less every time I see it, though. I'll tell you that. Yeah, that's that's the way I got with the uh, 2009. So I didn't bother with the other two watching them repeatedly. Conversation yeah. for another day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we have the awesome, awesome episode of Spacey, which actually I never wrote much care for the way Khan was in this this particular episode, but it has some iconic moments, and of course, like I said, it's it's the most important episode of Star Trek is, in my opinion. Yeah, um, it's one of those episodes that I think it, its importance is exactly what you're talking about. It was the stepping stone used to revive the franchise. And the episode itself, I think, maybe just gets a boost because of that retroactively. Yes. I mean, it's interesting. It's one of those episodes that... There's not a whole lot of conflict. Of course, there's the climax of the big fight in the engineering room between Kirk and Khan with really bad stunt doubles. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, but it's got some cool stuff, though, because you know, you're learning about this war that we were supposed to have 30 years in the future from when the episode aired, and there's this cryogenic cryo ship you know, with all of these people asleep for you know, a couple hundred years, and that's really interesting. Um, Arno Montalban does a good job, uh, though this <laughs> something I never noticed. So for those who who don't listen to the show too often, I am colorblind, and so I was watching this with uh, my girlfriend, and she had never seen this episode before, and she noted that uh, Ricardo Montalban's kind of in brown face in this episode, <laughs> and I never noticed because I can't really see it. Um, how do you guys feel about that? As as I recall, it is the same application they did for some, well, the first Klingons, and then some later ones when they remember to use it, which was called a makeup color called Mexican Number Two. <laughs> um, that's, that's pretty bad. But he is supposed to be Northern Indian in there. That's why they. He has the wig on and uh, for the dark hair as well as the, uh, the darker complexion was added in there. And in the, the, uh, the new updated versions here, the 40th anniversary edition here, uh, it is definitely more noticeable than it was in the past. And maybe that's what it was because it's been a long time since I've seen this episode. It's probably the first time I watched it on Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think previously I probably just saw it on, you know, reruns. Or I, I had a few episodes taped on VHS, and this was one of them. So, um, you know, the quality wasn't quite what it is now. Um, but I, it was still hard for me to tell. He just kind of looked a little more tan um, to me because of my eyes. But, Greg, how do you feel? I'm trying to think in the tone of what Eric was just saying about knowing what they were what they were doing and being a fan of history like even as a kid i kind of i had understood the reference of khan with the whole you know 
the Mongolian and Central Asian Khanates with the nomadic warriors and him being kind of a warrior. Back in the day, I didn't really phase me one way or the other. The older I get, I I try to tolerate what Star Trek was doing in the 60s. No, because I when I put the modern lens on it today, it's just something they wouldn't do. They would likely just cast an actor with maybe a, maybe a darker skin tone of some kind to fill the role. Really? I, I, maybe. I think so. I mean... Well, I, they... they... They did use like one of the whitest men on the planet, but they they kept him as a white guy though. That's what I mean. But I think I think if it was made today, it, okay, I'm going to use Barnum from Star Trek Beyond. With spoilers for anybody who hasn't seen Star Trek Beyond, like an Idris Elba type, because Khan needs to be physically imposing, which Ricardo Montalban was in this episode. But an actor like Idris Elba also is very physically imposing to most people around him. I mean, when I see him in a suit in Pacific Rim, I'm like, he looks like James Bond. And I know he wasn't running for James Bond. So I kind of see what they're doing. Didn't really bother me too much back then. Maybe it's because Ricardo Montalban is one hell of an actor. Yeah. People are still quoting him from Space Seed, and we quote him from Rathacon all the time. And I think maybe it helps that they weren't overtly offensive with it. They didn't turn it into some weird, goofy gimmick. They tried to make it an actual character aspect. I'm not saying it's good, but I'm saying maybe it's less bad, if that makes any sense. And, and originally, the character was supposed to be... Uh, what was it? I can't remember the first name, but his last name was Erickson. He was supposed to be a Viking-type character. <laughs> yeah, I heard about that. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, they, they had to... Uh, they, they didn't have to, I guess, but they, they changed it. Um, I, I know at that time, for example, when they were creating the Klingons, um, I'm blanking on the actor's name, uh, the, our first Klingon to be hired. He's not the first one you see on, on screen, but he also played Baltar in the original Battlestar Galactica. Uh, he... <laughs> When, when talking about how they created the Klingons, he, he was told he's going to be a Klingon commander. They're great. He went in for makeup, and he says, what does a Klingon look like? And the makeup guy says, well, I was hoping they told you. <laughs> <laughs> and together, they came up with the Klingon concept. It is Mexican number two, to give them that kind of ruddy, uh, look at with a little green added to it. Uh, then he wanted to be an imposing figure and a mysterious kind of figure. So he deliberately went with the Fu Manchu Genghis Khan kind of look. And that's how the Klingons started. Um, the, and the reason the Klingons continued so much in the series from there rather than the Romulans being the the number one baddie was they were cheaper to put on screen. Sure. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the major Star Trek decisions were made for budgetary reasons. You know, the, the transporter was a budget saving technique. So they wouldn't have to use the shuttle and have exterior shots and that type of thing. Right. And, and, and in the, you know, in the, in the sixties there, the, the communists 
were the bad guys, and the most mysterious of, of the communists were those far east, uh, the, the, the Asian, uh, Chinese, and, and Mongolian, uh, uh, you know, red China and all that sort of thing. And that's where they were going with. They wanted something still familiar that would clue in the audience that these are the bad guys. And and the and but they didn't want them to be exact knockoffs of the, those ethnic groups. They were because they were creating something new as, as well. Uh, it it was kind of like in in Miri. The reason they they made you know that planet be a duplicate of Earth was so they wouldn't have to explain how it was so much like Earth. Right. <laughs> now we're going from there. Earth in the sixties. <laughs> in fact, I forgot to mention that. That was the old Andy Griffith set. Right, yes. <laughs> so, anyway. so going back to Space Seed, of course we learned fairly quickly that, you know, Khan is a physical kind of specimen, right? Bones figures mm -hmm. that out pretty early. Um, but even though Bones is physically threatened by Khan and... You know, Kirk and Spock are really unsure about where he came from and why there's no record of his ship. Everyone's kind of quick to let him check out everything he can in the ship's library and have free reign of the ship. That that did kind of bother me a little bit. That seemed like not something Kirk or Spock would really want to do. Well, it worked with Gary Mitchell, so why not with? <laughs> I mean, did it? <laughs> <laughs> oh right, that did go wrong. I was like, wait a second, made me really think that for a second. I was like, did something happen in that episode I missed? That and when we I mentioned earlier, there's that one scene that always kind of clicks in my mind with each episode. The one for me is probably McCoy's greatest scene, in, in my opinion. It's when Khan snaps up with the knife in his hand, grabs McCoy by the neck. And McCoy says, well, either choke me or slip my throat. Make up your mind. <laughs> you mean it's, it's not the, the scene in the engineering room when Kirk and Connor are fighting and Kirk grabs the random piece of engineering equipment? <laughs> that somehow pulls out easily? That, that somehow pulls out easily. And uh, the whole time, you, like today, when I, like, when I rewatch it, I'm like, it's like fighting in a nuclear reactor. And you're like, Look, I'm not exactly sure what this rod does. It, it's for holding the sails down. I'm going to beat the hell out of this guy with it. And I'm just going to hope nothing goes wrong. Yeah. <laughs> no, that, that is it. At, at, at least the stuntmen were wearing the right clothes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Other than that, <laughs> the stuntman that was playing Christopher Pike's stuntman for that looked more like Christopher Pike. When he was mm -hmm. Speaking of what they were wearing, though, is there any explanation for why Khan gets a red shirt uniform? <laughs> perfectly he, fits him, by the way. He gets five costume changes, too. But most of them are, like, his stuff, and they're, they're right. very, like, they, they seem culturally in context and things like that. He's very, right. you know, sophisticated. These are almost like royal clothes. And then all of a sudden, he's wearing a red shirt. Yeah. And suddenly, he's an ensign on the Enterprise. I, that that just caught me totally off guard. I forgot totally completely about that. Yeah. No. He, well, he's wearing it when he meets with. Um, oh, MacGyver's. MacGyver's. Yeah. She walks in and she shows like no reaction to it. Really. She's like, "Well, you're on the Enterprise and you're in, you're in a red shirt. That's fine." No, I I don't think he she ever sees him in the 
in the uh, red shirt. Well, she does when doesn't. And, but she goes in. He's wearing the the gold uh, long jacket without the shirt, and he has that weird scene where he he tells her to leave or stay. You know, but make it do it because you want to. And then you must ask permission, and, and it's very manipulative. I mean, it's kind of a master manipulation course. And then he holds out his hand, takes her hand, and it goes really weird when he starts shouting, open your heart. <laughs> Will you open your heart to me as he's crushing her hand? <laughs> it's kind of intense. I mean, you know, because in The Wrath of Khan, of course, you know, he's talking to, to check off about how, you know, the, the his beloved wife died, and I assume this is MacGyver's, right? Um, but it's, believe that. it's kind of a manipulative, abusive relationship that he's created yeah. here, you know? Um, sure, he respects her artistic ability, but I feel like that's as far as it goes. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, it, so at that scene, he's still wearing the, the gold shirt, or the gold uh, jacket, and then when he, all of a sudden he's in his room, and Kirk comes in to, to confront him finally as being Khan, Noonien Singh. And uh, he, you know, Khan's like, oh, about time you figured it out kind of thing. And uh, when Kirk leaves, then Khan does his weird, you know, breathing technique, rips open the door, and uh, sends that security guard flying. Yeah, the security guards are really even more useless in this episode than most. Yeah, the, and I gotta believe that uh, that guy uh, didn't get up again for a very long time because uh, he got some air on that one. And then he's, I assume that's where Khan gets a, a phaser, I believe. Or, no, he didn't have a phaser. But he shows up in the in the, <laughs> the transporter room and does his Khan nerve pinch on, uh, <laughs> on Lieutenant Kyle. Mm-hmm. Way to go, Kyle. Where, you, know, <laughs> you have to let the woman drop, get the drop on you with the phaser, and then Khan sneaks up behind you and nerve pinches your neck some weird way. <laughs> I, I will say that like, I feel like MacGyver's is, is manipulated a little too quickly here. Like, okay, she's enthralled with him. She finds him interesting. He's powerful and is manipulating her. But she literally is giving up her entire crew of 400-plus people you know, to, to the stranger. Yeah, she goes from being attracted to somebody who's a good-looking man and confident to mutiny against Starfleet in five minutes. L little weird, but I do kind of set it up briefly with that uh, uh, scene where she shows up to see if Khan is awake yet. And Kirk has her step into the other office, I guess. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, he get you know, dresses her down about her performance on the, on the ship there, on Khan's ship, and then uh, she admits that she finds men of that time to be uh, older and more adventurous and, and all that. So she kind of gives a hint that that's something that she's kind of craving in her life. But again, it does seem to go mighty quick in there. Mm -hmm. And you know, with all the costume changes, maybe we're, that was supposed to signal, you know, multiple days going on. I don't know. It did, as far as I know, there wasn't any, any other indication that a lot of time had passed other than. No, I got you. Like the multiple days where 
there's stuff happening behind the scenes, including Khan and MacGyver spending three, four, five hours together. Yeah. Now, here's an interesting question, because I know a lot of people were really frustrated with Discovery when they had the whole mutiny, because the original series mentioned that there had never been mutiny on a starship before. But that that line in the in the original series it says that that's in the Tholian web, right? Seems right, yeah. So that episode's after this one, isn't it? I don't believe so. Is Tholian web before Space Seed? I was thinking second season. Tholian web is. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay. So, actually, I guess it's oh, see, it's a season oh, three episode. Season three, yeah. Yeah. So okay. So then, even Tholian web is is wrong because this is a mutiny, isn't it? Maybe they're not treating it like a mutiny, or maybe. Maybe I hate to say it like this, but it's entirely possible a somewhat pseudo military organization might just sweep away one rebellious crewmate as not quite a mutiny. Like treat it like yeah. a conspiracy, you need multiple people involved. Yeah, the the ship was never truly taken over in either of those cases. Someone tried tried or this this incapacitated the captain and tried to give commands to take over the ship, but they weren't actually successful. And they did give her the option at the end to have a court martial for her crime. They did. I guess just yeah. because it, it is the same crew, the same characters making the statement two seasons later, I feel like maybe it's splitting hairs to say it's not a mutiny. Yeah. But I don't know. Just it's something I hadn't really thought about before. Yeah. The, the weirdest thing to me about that episode, even, even seeing it you know, with you know, 70s and 80s and all this, and today was the whole admiration that Kirk had, Kirk and, and several of his crewmates there, had for Khan. Uh, even at that end, in the little captain's log, he mentions that it seems like such a waste to have them sent to a rehabilitation center. And they, they, these people just tried to murder him twice mm-hmm. and take and Kirk, and Spock was next, and uh, and then take over his ship so that they could go, probably murder more people and take control of a colony nearby. And but eh, you know it's okay, no big deal. But MacGyver's, you know she uh, she held a phaser on somebody and and then helped me live. So well, you can either go with them or I'm going to court martial you. Right. <laughs> it didn't make make much sense to me in any context. It's a little weird that Kirk feels like he has the latitude to do all of that, and then at the same time not really inform Starfleet that they basically just put you know, 70 Napoleons, 72 Napoleons on this planet, and maybe somebody should keep an eye on them. Right. Yeah, it was it was just such a strange setup, and that's that's not the the only time in Star Trek that you you see them try to to admire a a notorious historical figure. Yeah. Um. The the episode. Uh, I'm drawing a blank on it. It's the Nazi episode where. Oh sure. Friend of Kirk's. Uh, introduces Nazi culture to a planet because it was the best, or it was the most efficient economic system Earth had ever seen, 
and he was trying to help him out. He just didn't intend for it to go full Nazi. Right. Never go full <laughs> Nazi. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's kind of two things at play here, right? Because on one hand, you know, he, they respect Khan's intelligence, his strength, his abilities, you know, and so they recognize that they recognize how ruthless he is, how smart he is, how creative he is, how resourceful he is. But then on the other side, like literally don't tell anybody about it because they're not a significant threat that might find a way off that planet. You know, and I feel like they wanted it both ways. They wanted to recognize the significance of these people and their abilities, but also ignore them. Yes. <laughs> and of course, you know, you have Spock's big line at the end about, uh, you know, let's, it'd be interesting to see, you know, in a hundred years, what, uh, what, what we can sow from the seeds we have planted this day or something along that lines. And okay. it's like, yeah, I, I guess. <laughs> Why would you think it would be a good thing? I mean, I think Spock was more academically curious to see what would happen because, you know, they weren't given a ton of resources. It was supposed to be a harsh environment. So I think from his perspective, he was curious what things might end up like, but it never occurred to me that like nobody was going to be keeping an eye on it. Like, let's not inform Starfleet. They're not going to send like a probe even to, to see what's going on. Nothing at all. Right. Just, you know, 25, 35 years go by or whatever it was. And then all of a sudden, Oh, the Reliant shows up unexpectedly. Yeah. I, I believe it was actually only 15 years. Is it 15? Well, yeah. I think it's only supposed to have been 15 years. I get confused by the timelines because okay. You know, in Star Trek, I guess it's in Star Trek Three. You know, the Admiral mentioned that mentions that the Enterprise is, uh, you know, X number of years old or whatever, and it never really worked for me. It's twenty five years, thirty five years, whatever it is. But then you've got mm-hmm. Pike, and yet April before Pike. So I have no idea how old that ship is supposed to be. <laughs> yeah, because it was, I believe, April had ten years with it, and Pike had at least five, maybe ten. So Kirk had his five so right. yeah by that and then and even more so is it 20 years after that last refit have we jumped ahead that long or or what <laughs> like, i have no idea like, that's what i'm talking about so I, I don't really know how much time uh takes place between these events but you know um, and in space seed one of the things that always bothered me is where was Khan going in the first place he was in a ship that wasn't intended to go outside the solar system. Mm-hmm. Did, did this man with this amazing intelligence think he'd ship himself off to Mars and take over there or and just miss? Or <laughs> right. did he decide just to, to cast him, himself and his, his followers on, you know, onto the, the stellar winds and hope they came up with someplace, which seems like a lousy plan with somebody with such a great intelligence. Oh, you're absolutely right. They're just asleep forever, you know? So yeah, where, where are they going? 200 years is a really long time. So it, was it headed towards something? Yeah. And it should have been 270 years, by the way. Ooh, there you go. <laughs> because it was supposed to be 1996 when they left. And right. at that point, it should have well, been almost 300 years, not just two. So, okay, so let's, let's some simple math here. So according to Memory Alpha, Spacey takes place in the year 2267. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. And Wrath of Khan is twenty two eighty five. Okay. So that's what, 18? 18 years. Yeah. So it's 18 years, supposedly, between this episode and the Wrath of Khan. Right. Which yeah. I guess actually in real time is pretty close. Yeah. That's, that's freakishly close. Yeah. So. Okay, so yeah, that would explain why everybody kind of aged as they had at that point, without, uh, without getting too young, too much younger or too much older, mm-hmm. uh, compared to the time timeline there. And then, like like you said, if that was if it was supposed to be twenty two sixty seven, and Khan left in nineteen ninety six, that's two hundred and seven, well, two hundred and sixty nine years. There you go. You know, early on, they, they didn't realize people would be talking about it 50 years later down to the date, you know? So. Yeah. <laughs> In the Trelane episode, he mentioned, they mentioned something about uh, it being 900 years or 900 light years from Earth. And so that's where Trelane was getting his information. Well, based on what we were seeing and, and what Trelane's time period he had kind of set up, it was actually more like 600 years. Simple math, guys. Come on. <laughs> well, they didn't know exactly when Star Trek was taking place at the time. No, well, they're, they're trying to keep their options open. Yeah. yeah. Yep. But, of course, it's 2018 now, and the eugenics war is long gone and over. Um, those were tough times. And I, you yeah. know. <laughs> Thankfully, we didn't have real eugenics wars. No, we did not. It is weird, though, to think, you know, what what the 60s were looking ahead to in the 90s, which are now already 20 years behind us. Right. <laughs> you know? well, if we hadn't had Star Trek give us such hope for the future, that's where we would have ended up. Yeah, I think I think you might be right. You know, we still got to point towards first contact. That's not too far away from now. So, yeah, yeah. We, we got, what, 35 years or 45 years until World War III, right? Oh, God. <laughs> there we go. We got That's our next bullet point in Star Trek timeline. Lovely. But the eugenic wars wasn't World War III. No. That's the weird thing. Yeah, it was a world war, but it wasn't the third one. <laughs> right, it was 2.5. Your guys' definitions of world wars and Star Trek is a little weird, guys. Not you. I mean, the Star Trek people. Well, it's like, like so in, in uh, The Lion King, there's Lion King, there's Lion King 2, and there's Lion King 1 and a half. Right. Which takes place from different characters' perspectives. So it's, that's what the eugenics war is, you know. Yeah. Which is perfect, because Ricardo Montalban is in the first Naked Gun movie, and the second Naked Gun, Naked Gun movie is Naked Gun 2 and a half. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. See, it, it all ties together. Yeah. <laughs> And, and I always tell my sons, it always comes back around to Star Trek. Always, always. Um, it's a documentary of the future, and it's told in real time. <laughs> <laughs> um, anything else you guys want to cover on Space Seed before we wrap things up? If you haven't seen it, go watch it. This is one of those must-watch Star Trek episodes for Star Trek fans or even people new to Star Trek. Yes. Yeah, it's... It, it is not my favorite episode as a standalone episode, but it definitely enhances the the viewing of The Wrath of Khan, which is an outstanding movie. Yep, and to your point at the beginning of, the ep- of uh, our discussion for this episode, it, it saved the franchise, so this episode could be considered the most important episode of Star Trek. 
Correct. That's without it, we wouldn't have had anything to do with the next generation. Time and period. at the same time, creating arguably one of the most memorable villain characters in Star Trek, maybe even modern or in most sci-fi movie history. Everybody, everybody knows Khan. Even people who haven't seen Star Trek know of Khan. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, I think then we will wrap things up for this week. Uh, like I said, we're going to try something new when we come back next week. So be prepared for a totally different um, format and style here for what we plan to do. And Jeremy will be back with us. Uh, Eric, where can people find you or the Red Dalek or anything like that? Red Dalek is on Facebook. And I am on Twitter at Doc Sci-Fi. Fantastic. And uh, Greg? And as always, you can find me on Yahoo and Twitter at the underscore Bittersteel. Fantastic. And I am the Star Trek Dude on Twitter and Facebook, uh, focusing a lot on Twitter these days. So go tweet at me out there. Eric, thank you so much for joining us this week. Oh, thank you. I was so glad to be on here. Oh, and if anybody wants to send me any better Star Trek jokes, again, <laughs> at Doc Sci-Fi. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, p- uh, tag me on those too. That'll be fun. Uh, thank you, everyone who tuned in this week. We are Red Shirts and Runabouts, part of the Heroes Podcast Network, and we will catch you next week. Red Shirts and Runabouts is part of the Heroes Podcast Network. The show is hosted by myself, Gregory Bosco, along with Jeremy Munkin and Derek Mayer. The theme song is by Flying Killer Robots. You can find us as well as other Heroes Podcast Network shows at heroespodcast.com, as well as on iTunes, Blog Talk Radio, Google Play, and anywhere you can use an RSS feed. Follow us on social media at Heroes Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitch. And you can also email us at contact at heroespodcast.com. Engage. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, full work limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.